glad you are uh, here with us again this morning. If you got your Bibles, we're in Colossians. Uh, it's in the New Testament, one of the books of Paul's epistles that he wrote, and we'll learn more about it uh, this morning. But we are starting this series called Root Cause. And uh, to be very honest with you, I've never really tried my hand at gardening, uh, but Katie and Natalie love to grow things. And Natalie always has a plant or two growing on our windowsills in our apartment. She loves things like succulents and things like that. Uh, Katie recently bought a little hydroponic garden that she put in our windowsill where she grew lots of herbs and plants that we actually use for cooking spices and things like that over the past year. But the one thing that I do know about gardening is this. Whatever seed you plant, it's going to need to take root to addition to it uh, eventually produce fruit in its life right it you can't just look at the seed you can't just hope that it will grow fruit you have to plant it let it take root and then it will eventually produce its fruit and this is the core of this series and what the book of colossians is all about the apostle paul and timothy are responsible for writing this book to help this church, this church in Colossae, to learn better how to produce the fruit of righteousness in their lives. Because it takes more than just wishful thinking or a desire for good things to be produced in your life for it to happen. It actually takes intention and cultivation to grow the gifts and good fruits of righteousness in our life. Before we jump into this, though, I want to give us a little background on this book so you kind of understand who's it being written to and again who's writing it again paul if you're not familiar paul is a apostle one of the major writers of the new testament timothy was one of his uh, followers his apprentice his disciples who he was teaching paul and timothy write this letter but it's unique because they're writing it from prison in rome uh, they are they are not sitting at home in a nice little writing desk you know, with a crackling fire beside them saying, you know, what shall we write to this nice church? They are in a prison in Rome. And I want you to understand too, even prison in Rome is not like our prisons today. Uh, it's not a, a cell where, you know, every day you're taken out to the yard to, to exercise or to eat meals. It was a, it's basically almost like a, a cave that you're chained into. And they're writing this, they, they get parchment, they they're basically get very little light to write by. And so this is not a pleasant environment that this letter is being written from. Uh, and the, the other unique thing about this is they probably had never actually been to this church in Colossae, in, in the Colossian church. They had visited many other churches, but they actually just knew about these church, but this church, but they had never met them. The church in Colossians was basically a, a relatively new church, a church plant. It was started by a guy, na guy named Epaphras who had been converted by Paul. And this church was primarily made up of people with little to no religious or spiritual background. So it's not a church of Jewish people, a lot of background. These were brand new converts, people coming to understand who Jesus was, even understanding a correct view of who God is. Again, the Church of Colossae was a young church whose belief in the gospel at this point, as they're writing this letter to them, was being challenged by other teachers and other influences coming into the life of this young church. Again, so you picture Paul, this father, church planter, 
hero of the faith who I'm sure people in this church had knew about. The, the church planter, the pastor of that church, Epaphras, had talked about Paul and how much he had made an impact in his life. But yet this young church was made up of people with very little religious background and lots of other influences were coming into their church. And Paul and Timothy write this letter to kind of set the record straight. Like, hey, let me help us as people of faith know how to actually produce righteousness in our lives. So that's kind of the, the story of what the book the, the background. So the question is, what will this book do for us? What will it do for you and I? And I think it's going to do four things as we look at this book. And it's the four things that it was designed to do for the original church as well. And the first is this, it's going to till the soil of our hearts of any unhealthy practices. It's going to get in there. If you, if you know anything, I, I read a lot about gardening over the last couple of weeks. When they till the soil, it's not just to break up the top soil. It's to actually get down deeper where the more healthy soil is, where there's more nutrients that are there to, to get past some of the unhealthy stuff at the top and get down into the rich soil. And this book is designed to do that. And what it pushes back on is, is what was happening during that time was called uh, synchronistic living. The, the church in Colossae began to embrace this philosophy called syncretism. And it's basically the idea that you take concepts or ideas from multiple belief systems and create your own ideology. The Colossians were saying, you know what? We like Jesus. We like him a lot. He's the main part of our belief system, but also like some things about these other religious beliefs and these other religious practices that I've heard about. And they were keeping Jesus central, but they were not keeping him primary or absolute. They were creating a religion and theology where it was Jesus and and the truth is, we often do the same thing. We take the parts we like about Jesus or his teachings, and then we leave the parts behind that we don't like. We create our own religious system that fits into our preferences, our desires. And when we do this, we then wonder why my life hasn't actually changed. Why it isn't producing pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. Why I'm not experiencing the joy of salvation the way that I see so many others doing it. It's because we have, what I say, watered down this religion. I, I remember growing up, I, I played football through middle school uh, until I got hit really hard one time, and I was like, I, I'm done. No need to do this anymore. But one of my favorite things about football was the water breaks, because we had this one coach who, uh, he like put two packs of Gatorade in for like what should be one pack. It was really strong Gatorade, and I loved it. But then we had this one coach who like watered down the Gatorade and we would come, you know, break time and we would have that Gatorade. I'm like, I'm practicing all day for the good Gatorade and you're giving me the bad Gatorade. I also remember a time I lived with my brother growing up in uh, college. Uh, we lived together and uh, my parents would give us both money to buy groceries. And I'll just say, I was a little more responsible with my money than my brother, uh, which meant I usually had groceries at the end of uh, the month when he did not. And one of the things I loved was, was milk. I loved just whole milk with chocolate chip cookies. I'd come home. Well, I came home most often at the end of the month, and my brother, unbeknownst to me, had drink my milk. But instead of, like, actually showing that it's gone, he would fill it back up with water and mix the milk. And I was starting to it was like, this is not whole milk. This is bad milk. Watered-down things are not good, right? It's just not the same. doesn't bring the impact 
or the joy into your life. And this is what happens when we try to create our own religion. We're not getting the benefit of what God intended to live this kind of faith. So if that's what this book will do. It's going to till up this soil and push out unhealthy practices. The second thing it's going to do, it's going to pull the weeds of misplaced hope, is the way I would say it. And, and culturally, there was this imperialistic ideals. These were people living in Colossians uh, under Roman rule. And, and there was another issue that was happening in the church. Many, even though their lives had been transformed by the gospel, were still looking to Rome as the source of hope for their daily living. And it's hard to maybe understand the full influence of Rome. At its height, Rome was 4,200 miles across. Just to give you an idea, the U.S. is about 3,300 miles across, basically from England to India was the Roman Empire, not just a nice little city in Italy like we look at it today, right? It was a massive, massive worldwide system. Rome was incredible building roads, creating laws, providing citizenship. It was very easy for people in that day to look primarily to Rome as their source of ultimate provision, direction, and hope. And there's certainly a similarity to today in how we sometimes view even this city or our country or our government systems. And Paul wasn't telling them to hate Rome or to revolt against Rome, but simply don't make this imperialistic country, this mindset, your God. Following Christ is not this additive that helps you become a better New Yorker, a better American, a better parent, a better spouse, or whatever. It is instead transformational in every aspect of our lives. And it can't help but impact how we live in our world, how we relate to other people around us. Hear this. It isn't something that makes our life better. It is something that makes our lives different. And we often treat it as just a little additive to put in. And we... and. and it's Paul pushing back on this. He's like, we got to get rid of these other weeds in your life that are choking out the power of the gospel. So it does those two things, which are kind of preparing. And then it, this book is going to do a couple other things. It's going to next plant the seeds of righteous roots in our life. And those righteous roots deal with the supremacy of Christ and who Jesus is. Paul spends time in this book not just refuting the things of the world, but he spends most of his time talking about the beauty and supremacy of Jesus. He uses the life of Christ as an example of righteous living and challenges us to use that example in order to plant roots of righteousness in our lives. So what we're going to do is each week we're going to take a look at one of these seeds of righteousness and follow its path as how it would grow in our life. These seeds aren't just good ideas. They come from the very life an example of the supreme life that Jesus lived. There was, I think I was trying to remember, I think it was uh, Papa John's or something, better ingredients, better pizza. You remember that slogan? And I, I don't believe that's true about Papa John's or Domino's, right? But that, that thing is true. Better ingredients equal better outcome. Uh, PJ's girlfriend, her dad is a world-renowned chef, uh, lives in the city, has many restaurants in the city, and I can tell you, when we go to his restaurants, one of the things that makes the difference, he is very skilled and he's a great chef, but he gets the best ingredients. He walks into the market and they have set aside the best vegetables for him. He goes to the meat market and they have set aside the best cuts of meat for him. 
and his better ingredients make every time I've been to one of his restaurants a special experience. And this is what we're talking about here. The, these seeds aren't just little ideas that we come up with. They are the best that God has set aside and said, if you plant these in your life, it is going to produce righteous roots in your life that is going to bring fruit, which is the final thing that we will do, that this book will do for us. It will help us bear the fruit of a cultivated life of experiencing freedom in Jesus. Not just looking at the supremacy, the great ingredients, but understand that we can experience those in our lives as well and walk in the same freedom that Christ did. This book will help us identify the fruits that should be in our lives when we allow these seeds to take root and flourish. And these fruits aren't shackles or burdens to bear. Instead, they are pathways of freedom, of joy and hope that will allow us to live the life as God intended, a life to the fullest and a life to the freest. So let's look at this first uh, and how we jump into this and what this first uh, seed is for us and what I think is going to be I might even say the most important seed that we plant in our life. And it begins in Colossians 1, verse 3. I'm going to read this. We're going to be in 3 through 6 today. But it starts off by this. Paul and Timothy say this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God. There's a sentiment found in this grateful heart of Paul. Remember, he and Timothy are in prison. Yet they aren't sending out letters of pleas to come free them or rescue them. They are sending out letters of encouragement. And the key work or the key word that I want us to focus on today, which I sense in this very first writing here, is the seed of hope. The seed of hope is that we live a life. The, the first seed we should be planting in our life is to have hope in our life. These words of Paul and Timothy are words of hopefulness. They aren't excited about what's going on, uh, maybe in their circumstances, but they are excited about what's going on and, and who, is, who they're writing to. They're not despondent about their current situation, but they are excited about what is ahead. And this kind of hope is found in gratefulness to God. Where does hope come from? It comes from a gratefulness to God. I love the way he first addresses the church. We thank God for you, right? Paul didn't say thank you to them. He wasn't like, thank you guys for all the good stuff you're doing. Thank you for all that you have done for me. And thanks for all your faithfulness and perseverance. He does that in other letters. But in this letter, he tells the church how thankful he was that God has been doing something in them. He sees a hope flourishing. Remember, this is a young church, a church that probably wasn't there a year ago. And he is seeing what God is doing. He's thankful for what God is doing and what God is going to do. He's dreaming. He's thinking of the future of their church, of them as individuals, and the way their faith is going to make a difference in that city and in that region. He's hopeful, and he's thanking God for this. So where does this hope, what does this kind of hope do in our lives? How do we put these roots in our lives. Let's look at Colossians 1, 4, and it starts to lay out this. They're thankful to God for what? This. They've been, they've been saying, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. When we plant the seed of hope in our life, here's what happens. It changes a couple of views. One, it changes our view of salvation. Salvation. 
Christianity at its very core is about faith. So it's mentioned in this verse. Since we heard of your faith in Christ. And Paul addresses the issue of faith repeatedly in a number of other books that he writes. James talks about it, how faith and work relate to each other in another book in the New Testament. And the core issue of Christianity and faith is this. It is a movement of placing your faith in yourself and placing it into something beyond yourself. And this is a faith that saves, is what he's talking about. A faith that saves us. But is this really distinctive to Christianity? Right? Don't, don't other religions teach the same thing? The truth is, is they don't. When you look at every other major world religion, at the heart, their belief system is this idea. What is it that I can do to get to God? What is it that I must do to reach God? They're completely based on the work of man to ascend to God. It is a faith in man and a faith in self that in the end is the source of their hope. If I do enough good, if I do more good than bad, if I'm just better than most people, if I'm in the majority of good, if I don't commit the major sins, then I'm all right. Christianity, on the other hand, is not based at all on anything that I can do. This is where the view of salvation shifts. Christianity is based on the belief system that God has provided a way of salvation, and it is not by my own hands or my own deeds. This is the start. This is why I said at the beginning, this seed, this seed of hope, and how we view salvation is the most important. It is transformational in our life. Christianity is different in that it teaches God does not judge us by our wickedness or even by our righteousness. Right? Catch that for a minute. When you talk about other world religions, they, they balance one of two things, right? They view you by, how, what, did you do something really bad? Did you do something that's unforgivable? Have you done enough good to overcome the bad? Or they view you by your righteousness, right? How much good have you done? Have you put enough karma out into the world so that now there's good coming back to you? Do you know what the Bible says about our good deeds before God? They're like filthy rags. They're dirty. They're messy. They're no value to God. Whatever good works of our hands that we put out to God, when they're piled up next to, it says it's like a rubbish. It's trash. And it does not mean that we should not do good or strive to do good. It's not that we just do evil either. But what he's saying, what Paul is laying out here, this change of salvation is, stop trying to get God to accept you. God has accepted you. Now look to him for salvation and him alone, not by your own hands. Even our, even our righteousness, our, it says, condemns us. It's not by our hands. When we in any way place our hope in ourselves and in our good works for salvation, we are missing the gospel. Paul's goal isn't to make you feel bad about yourself here. Instead, it is to be thankful to God for the joy we have in placing our faith in Jesus Christ. There is a hope beyond ourselves. And this is what a faith that saves is. This is what hope leads to. And a faith that saves will do a couple of things. One, a true faith in Christ, a faith that saves, will be public and visible. Right? It says, since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul never met these people, but he has heard about their faith. How could he hear? Because it's public and visible. 
They've been doing things to, to let people know. They've been talking about it. It is a major part of their life. But we've got to be careful if all we act like is our faith is public and visible. i just got to put on a good outward shell, right, so people think I'm good. We've got to be careful. There's a caution here because without the other part of this, we can fall into legalism. Like just act right, do right, be the Christian robot, and everything's good. But we also got to make sure that we do make it visible, that it is public. It's a part of who we are. But a faith that saves will also do this. True faith in Christ will generate love and unity. And he says this, and we know this, of the love that you have for all the saints. You love all the saints. It's a beautiful picture of this balance of what a living, a faith that saves does. It can't help but be noticed by people. It will bring change in your life. But you're not going to live in such a way that you're pushing people away, creating distinctions that people can't even connect with you. Instead, you're bringing about love and unity. You're connecting people. But again, you've got to be careful because if all you're dealing with is like love and unity, I love everybody, you've got to be careful because then you can fall into the trap of pluralism. We're just, you know, whatever's good. Whatever's good for you is fine. You don't have to, and this goes back to what we talked about, we start then watering down the gospel. And there's a beauty here of living in balance, living a visible, tangible, public faith, and in then doing so brings love and unity. And this is what Paul says, the hope that will happen in you will bring about a faith that saves, and that faith will be public, visible, bring about love and unity. Key thought here, a faith in Christ cannot be hidden or isolated. It will have impact on our lives and the lives of others. It is a faith that saves. But then we're going to not just change our view of salvation. In Colossians 1, 5 through 6, we, we see the next thing that it's going to change. He says, because of all this, because of this love that you have, this demonstration that you have, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, and it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Basically what Paul is saying here, Everywhere the gospel goes, it's taking root, it's bearing fruit, we're seeing it in your life, and we're imagining what's going to happen in the future. And this changes our view on preservation. Not just salvation, but how we preserve and persevere through this life. Too often we live our lives, we live our lives with just a survival mentality. What must I do to preserve? to make it through this moment, this day, this season of my life. And Paul pushes back on this idea here when he says that gospel has come to you and is bearing fruit and increasing. It's impacting you now, and it's increasing in a way that it's going to impact your life in the future. And this is not just a faith that saves. This changes to help us understand that we have a faith that endures, a faith that will endure through trial, tribulation, triumphs, whatever. Paul is trying to change how we view this world and the work of God in our lives. We must have a here and now perspective and a soon and coming perspective. Both are important. One of the other distinctives about the Christian faith is our perspective on eternity. For, for many world religions, there is a, a cycle, right? However we, how much we do in this life, uh, you know, we can 
gain this much ground, then we got to start back over and do it again. And there's this cycles of man-made enlightenment until we get to God. For most of us, the easy thing to do is just to focus on the here and now, but our faith is also about a future completeness. This is what I love about the Christian faith. I'm not going to die, and at the end, God's going to say, okay, you did about 20% this time. Get back in there, and let's do it again. Circle it around one more time. Then I get back again, and he's like, you know, pretty good this time. You know, back in the game again. No, it's not that. When, when our faith is found complete in death and eternity, it is done. It's complete. Jesus has paid it all. This is not, again, it's not on my shoulders. Thank God. It is on the shoulders and the work of Christ done for me. And so our faith is complete. It will endure through today and all of eternity. It's like investing versus spending, right? We've got to do both. Spending, I have to pay my bills today. But I also want to invest for the future. So that one day, hopefully, I may not have to work every day. There's things I can enjoy. There's trips I can take. There's travels or times I can spend with family. That's saving and investing in the future. We have to do both. And this is the beauty of this faith. And here's what I want you to understand about a faith that endures couple things. It will impact our view of today, right? In verse six, it says, since the day you heard and understood, it has been coming alive in your life. This is not only a future faith, what we have. Too often, the Christian faith just gets viewed as it's your ticket to heaven. It's not that the truths, the fruits of righteousness and living, righteous living have an impact on us today and how we walk through the trials and triumphs of this life. But if we only think about the impact it has on us today, we have to have a caution here. We will live a life that lacks expectancy. We're just trying to survive, not expecting anymore. Where God wants so much more for us in the future. The second thing that a faith that endures will show us is this. And not only impact our view of today, it will inform our view of tomorrow. It will inform our view of tomorrow. This is Verse 5 kind of lays this out. It says, you have a hope laid up for you in heaven. This is not only a present faith. We are investing in our future, a future that will pay dividends, not just in heaven, but even later in our own life, with our own family, the next generation, in our later years, even in the peace of passing from this world, from death into eternity. We're investing in that. Uh, If you've been around our congregation uh, you know, my mom passed in early 2020, and one of the moments I'll never forget in my life is the peace of the moment of her passing. She had invested, and she had built a faith and a family that we just, it was like ushering, turning a chapter on this physical life and opening a new book on eternity as we watched her pass. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen to every person of faith. At that moment, though, it was demonstrated to me and how I experienced the, even in the death of a loved one, there can be peace because the investment she had made in her faith over the years. It will inform, impact our view of today and inform our view of tomorrow, but we have to be careful because if all we think about is tomorrow, then we will live a life that lacks authenticity. We'll act like there's no pain today. Oh, that doesn't bother me. Why, why should I feel bad about this or that? Like I'm just waiting for heaven. I'm happy. No, things hurt. There's pain in this life today. It happens. We have to deal with it. 
but it's not our only reality. There's a reality of the future. The key thought is this. Don't live just for today or just for tomorrow, but learn to make the most of each day based on an et eternal perspective. So uh, what's the picture for today? And this will kind of give us uh, what we're moving toward each week. So that we talked about the seed of hope, right? There's a seed of hope that God gives, gives us through the work of Jesus. We have hope, salvation, and that's what it brings. It brings a root of salvation in our life. That we can start to experience salvation deeply. A salvation, uh, faith that saves and a faith that endures deeply rooted in our life. Eternal perspective, a perspective for today, all of that. But then it's going to bring fruit. And this takes us back to the very first verse we looked at. It's the fruit of gratitude. That we start living lives that are grateful for what God is doing and will do in our lives. I can say this with almost certainty. If you struggle with gratitude, you probably struggle with hope. You're not living a hopeful life. You're living a life of despair, anxiety, relenting challenges overwhelm you. But when we take hope, and hope beyond ourselves, right? Not hope in ourselves. Hope beyond ourselves. We plant it in the soil of our hearts and allow the salvation of God to take root. It will produce gratitude and gratefulness in our life. So my question for the day is this. What are you hoping for? Just enough to get by? Are you hoping for an enduring salvation for today and all of eternity? Plant that seed of hope in your life. But I'm going to ask you to do this in a tangible way as well. Over on the table over here, there are packs of seeds, all kinds of different seeds. And I thought it might be fun as a congregation for us to actually try to cultivate something physically while we learn about cultivating our hearts. And so when we leave in a few minutes, I'm going to challenge you to, to grab one of these over there, whatever you want. I like cilantro, so I got cilantro. And, uh, and work over the next couple of months to see if you can grow this. To see, I, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm not buying you all hydroponic plants or any uh, pots or anything like that. You might have to go get some soil. You might have to find a place in the neighborhood you can go plant this and probably die in the winter. But see over our next months if you could grow something and think about the work that goes into making this happen. Because it's that same intention and cultivation to grow this physically that we have to put into the work of planting these seeds and cultivating them into our hearts as well. Let's pray together. God, it's so easy to just want the fruit of righteousness in our life to just say, I want peace, I want joy, I want hope, I want this, I want, I want everything that Jesus had. But yeah, we don't follow his teachings. We don't let them take root in our life. Sometimes we even try to experience without God even having experienced the salvation of Christ in our life. So God, as we begin this journey together, may we be open in our hearts to tilling up the soil, pulling the weeds, planting these seeds of righteousness deep in our life and cultivating them in such a way that they'll bring fruit. 
God, these aren't seeds we have to go and find. They're seeds you've given us. Beautiful truths of Christ that he has given us that are going to be displayed in this book as we study it. So God, allow us to take this in and, and look at our past and look at our future and realize how faithful you have been and know how faithful you will be. God, we trust you. We call on you in this moment. God, to till up our hearts, plant these seeds, and bring the fruit of righteousness into our